It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Misha Gajewski, and this week, our stories are all about the human body and the weird and wonderful things that happen to it. I mean, it's kind of wild what our bodies can do. Did y'all ever get that book right before you started going through puberty, the like, what's happening to my body book or some variation of that title? I got that book when I was 12. My mom just kind of handed it to me with little to no explanation, which I feel like there should have at least been like a trigger warning about some of that stuff because it was a lot, especially the body hair part. And while at the time I like did not appreciate this book because who wants a cartoon depiction of armpit hair? I kind of wish there was one of those books like for the rest of my adult life. You know, a book that discusses things like it's totally normal if you can't turn your head to the left because you slept funny, or acne in your 30s is definitely a real thing. I bet our storytellers kind of wish they had a book like that too. Anyway, our first story today is from Rachel Gross. It was recorded in 2018 at the Oberon Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The theme that night was Unmasked, which is fitting for the before times. It's March 5th, 2017, and my life is about to change. I'm in the doctor's office holding my best friend's hand, and we're both looking at the screen in front of us, showing the inside of my uterus. I asked my doctor, we'll call her Dr. Tico, for a copy of the Polaroid of my sonogram, just because I want to remember this moment forever. And later, I post a photo to Instagram. It's me smiling, holding up that blurry, grainy little photograph, and you can't really see her in the photograph, but the important thing is, I know she's there. I caption it, welcoming you to the world, my beautiful baby IUD. <laughs> Despite having just had a harpoon rammed up my cervix, I'm pretty pleased with myself. <laughs> I've wanted an IUD forever. It's a piece of plastic you shove into your uterus and forget about for three to five years, and it makes you pretty much unimpregnatable. It is literally the easiest, safest, and laziest form of birth control I know, meaning it fits with all my values. <laughs> I named my hormonal IUD Newsom after my favorite folk singer, Joanna Newsom, and the progressive lieutenant governor of California, Gavin. And we are very happy together. But not everyone is as pleased as I am about my new womb mate. So I mentioned Newsom in my email newsletter, which just goes out to friends and family. It's called the Gross Out because my last name is Gross. And I immediately get a flurry of texts from my mom. She's like, 
Oh, Rachel, that's private. What if your employer finds out? What if you scare off future boyfriends? And the next day, I slack my boss at work at Smithsonian, where I'm a science editor, that I will be working from home because I'm recovering from extreme IUD cramps, to which he responds, Rachel, boundaries, and sends me the facepalm emoji. <laughs> Honestly, I love shocking people, so this just makes me love Newsome more. She's my guardian angel. She's my amulet of protection. She is my reproductive Cerberus, guarding the entrance to my fallopian tubes, making sure I don't get any unwanted visitors. Having an IUD makes me feel untouchable. So I wake up more than a year later in June with a burning sensation between my legs. Never a good thing. I recognize my old foe, the UTI. For the uninitiated, I hate you, and a UTI... <laughs> a UTI is when bacteria, usually E. coli, get into your urinary tract leading up to your bladder, and it basically feels like you constantly have to pee, but every time you do, it's just a trickle. So, I spent an entire night going between my bed and the bathroom, eventually just giving up and dragging my laptop to the bathroom and watching Queer Eye on the toilet. <laughs> but I know the drill. I got my antibiotics. Ten days later, I go back to check in with Dr. Tico. Turns out, I don't just have a UTI. I have something called BV, or bacterial vaginosis. I've never heard of this, which is weird because I love learning about vaginas. I'm kind of the animal sex correspondent. But it's actually the most common bacterial infection uh, of women's vaginas, and one in three women have it. And it's the overgrowth of a different type of bacteria, this time in the vaginal tract. Yes, women have three holes. And it actually comes, um, it can be triggered by having sex. And this makes sense. I am having more sex now that I'm in a happy relationship with a wonderful man named Alex, who also loves my IUD. But I come home from the doctor with a plastic plunger. And the idea of this plunger is you fill it up with this thick white antibiotic cream every night, and then you insert it into yourself and lay on your back and think about what you've done. <laughs> At this point, I'm exhausted. I'm not sleeping well, but more than that, it's tiring to go to work every day and try to hide the fact that you're itching yourself running to the bathroom every five minutes, trying to get through meetings like you're not in pain and discomfort. And it's isolating not being able to talk about it because for some reason, vaginal infections still aren't dinner table conversation, apparently. So one night, uh, as I'm giving Alex my state of the vagina update, <laughs> I actually burst out crying and I couldn't explain this to him, but I suddenly just felt ashamed and dirty and worthless, like I had a big scarlet V on my forehead. Two more weeks pass, I go back to the doctor. I still have BV, or it went away and came back, unclear. But now the doctor tells me that there's something I really don't wanna know, which is that the problem might be my IUD. And I'm like, are you kidding me? All I wanna do is not get pregnant. Now the vagina goddesses are punishing me. But apparently there is an association between IUDs and some bacterial infections. And the reason is super gross, which is why I'm gonna tell you about it. <laughs> so, your vagina is a delicate ecosystem with just the right balance of acid, heat, and microbes. 
I like to think about it as another planet. When you introduce a foreign object, when you introduce a foreign object, like a rocket or an IUD with strings hanging down, it changes the environment profoundly. So with the IUD, bacteria love to cling to that string, which then gets covered in cervical mucus, which has gotten thicker because of your IUD hormones. And pretty soon, you have a colony of bugs hiding out in mucus caves, and it's a fortress that no antibiotic can penetrate. It's called a biofilm. So if you've seen the movie Aliens, I think of it as that mucus cave where all the humans are suspended with the aliens in their chest just waiting to burst out and attack. <laughs> yeah, so at this point, I have two options. One, I can remove my IUD. And I really hate this option because we can't be sure it's Newsom's fault and it wouldn't be fair to her. And also, I really don't want to go back to the world of shitty birth control options. And then there's number two. It's called boric acid, and it's the main ingredient in roach poison. Yeah, that was my face, too. <laughs> so I actually read about it online, so I brought it up with my doctor. Uh, and what I'd read is that it's this white powder that has been used since the 1800s to treat vaginal infections. And that's because it works. It kills good bacteria, bad bacteria, and that nasty biofilm we've been talking about. But it's basically an atom bomb for your vagina. So it's more of a last resort option. But Dr. Tico agrees that a recurrent case of BB is an appropriate time to deploy the atom bomb. So the important thing to know if you're ever prescribed boric acid is that it comes in a pill like any kind of antibiotic, but it's actually not a pill you swallow. It's a vaginal suppository, so you just put it up there. And it comes in a container with a skull and crossbones and the word poison in large red letters. And it says, keep away from pets and children. <laughs> and as if that weren't bad enough, my doctor also said my boyfriend couldn't go down on me for two weeks. Talk about punishment. <sighs> so I was a good patient. I took my poison every night. And as I was waiting for it to dissolve, I was having some more negative feelings towards Newsome. Like, what the hell, Newsom? You were supposed to be my friend. You were supposed to help me be not a slave to my own biology. Now you're making me choose between a burning bush and putting rat poison in my vagina. <laughs> Five days into this regimen, I passed out early at Alex's place, and I woke up and it was completely dark. I realized pretty quickly I'd forgotten to do something important, so I went through my mental Rolodex, call mom, charge my phone, ah, vagina poison. So I get the pill for my purse and go to the bathroom. But it's 4 a.m. and I'm half asleep. And I forget what I'm doing. And I look and realize I'm holding a pill in my hand. So I swallow it. And as I'm sitting on the toilet, I realize, oh, fuck. It was like a tornado went through my head, clearing out everything with that one thought. I just swallowed poison. I was feeling lightheaded, there was ringing in my ears, and I was suddenly really aware of my body, the way that my legs were shaking, and that my knees were knocking together. I just put my head in my hands and started chanting to myself, oh God, oh God, oh God, what have I done? I ran back to the room, I got my phone and I googled, I swallowed boric acid. <laughs> right? Right after the poison control hotline uh, was a study, and it was called Fatal Ingestion of Boric Acid in an Adult. <laughs> I was able to skim the preview text, and basically a 45-year-old guy had swallowed 
boric acid, and he had immediately started vomiting and having green diarrhea. So at this point, I'm panicking. All I can do is picture myself on a stretcher, getting my stomach pumped, losing all control over my body. So I start shaking Alex awake, and I'm like, I think I swallowed something. And he's still mostly asleep, so he says, oh, I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> and I say, no, it's, it's poison. And until now, I actually hadn't told him what I was taking for my infection because I was embarrassed. So now I show him the container with the skull and crossbones and my Google search results. And he sits right up, immediately says, we're going to the hospital. And I didn't realize this at the time, so I was a little distracted, but I later found out that he only found one of his shoes, so he actually took me to the hospital in one shoe and one sock. <laughs> but I remember that the ride to the hospital was excruciating. I couldn't sit still. I kept having to tap my foot and clutch at his shirt, and I just kept mumbling over and over again, oh God, oh God, oh God. And as soon as we got to the emergency room, I ran to the check-in window and I asked the nurse, am I gonna die? She said she wasn't sure, I had to wait for the doctor. <laughs> and they put me in a wheelchair and brought me to a hospital bed. About 20 minutes later, the doctor comes up and as soon as he hears the word boric acid, he calls the poison control hotline, which doesn't make me feel better. Then he asked me to recite what happened that night. And so I tried to remember the steps, woke up late, was confused, swallowed my suppository. And I noticed that there's a nurse nearby trying not to laugh. The doctor gently tells me that I am not going to die. Instead, I will probably have some cramps and a little gas. I swallowed 100 milligrams of a weak acid. I would have had to take the whole bottle for it to have any real effect, he tells me. Uh, and if I'd been able to look closer at that Google search result, I would have seen that that was a man who took two cups of boric acid in a suicide attempt. So the doctor gives me some graham crackers and a little cup of apple juice and... <laughs> And he sends me home with a bill for $100 because American healthcare. <laughs> and I just lay there trying to get control over my heartbeat, trying to process the fact that I'm not actually going to die. After that night, I took the rest of my pills exactly as prescribed, and my BV cleared up, and it hasn't been back. But I'm very aware that it could come back at any time, and if it does and it's resistant, I've decided I will remove my IUT. But for now, Newsom and I, we have an understanding. I think we're both aware of each other's limits a little more. But by taking her off her pedestal, it's improved our relationship. Now I'm able to appreciate her for what she really is, an ingenious piece of plastic that, in the best case scenario, frees me up to live my life. I'm no longer as romantic about birth control. I know my IUD isn't a guardian angel. It isn't a magic amulet of protection. It's a medical device you put in your body, and that comes with risks as well as benefits. Most people won't swallow their vagina poison, but no matter what you do, there will always be a biofilm of unanswered questions and possibilities you couldn't possibly plan for. Thank you. That was Rachel Gross. Rachel is a science and health reporter who writes for the New York Times, Scientific American, and the BBC. She is the author of the 2022 book Vagina Obscura, An Anatomical Voyage, a New York Times editor choice that Kirkus Review called an eye-opening biological journey.
Before that, she was a 2018-2019 Knight Science Journalism Fellow at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the Digital Science Editor of Smithsonian Magazine, where she launched a column about unsung women in the history of science. Okay, before we continue with today's episode, a couple of reminders. We have so many shows coming up, both indoors and outdoors this summer in places like New York, Vancouver, Toronto, Seattle, D.C., and more. You can check out storycollider.org slash shows for more information. We also have our first show that's completely in Espanol coming up at the Pecanico Center in Terrytown, New York on July 13th. If you're a Spanish-speaking science story fan, you won't want to miss that or the very lovely reception afterwards. If you'd like to learn more about how to tell a science story, check out storycollider.org education. We offer private workshops both online and in person for groups, and we offer public courses for individuals online as well. Find out more at storycollider.org education. And finally, if you're a fan of this podcast, and if you, like us, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science, to change our understanding of how science happens, and who it belongs to, please consider donating to the Story Collider at storycollider.org donate. You can also sign up to support us on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash the Story Collider. Our Patreon supporters can receive an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. We are so grateful to everyone who helps to make our work possible. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, our second story is from Brian Berlin. It was told in 2019 at Caveat in New York City. The theme that night was Outliers. When I was in fifth grade, my family moved in the middle of the school year, and suddenly I was the new kid at school. And there was a lot of adjustment that took place over that first year, but my biggest adjustment was that suddenly I had to change for gym class. And that was frightening for me. And the thing that made it weirder was that like everyone had been doing it for months before I came in, so they had already accepted this thing that I was like, this is insane. Because at my school, there was only one locker room and the girls got the locker room. So the guys just had to go to a random classroom And there was just those floor-to-ceiling windows that just had all this light coming in. And there was nowhere to hide. Everyone just had to change out in the open. And I hated doing it. And what I would do is I would wear two shirts to school. And then I would uh, get those pants that had like the zip-off bottoms that would turn into shorts. And so my change routine for gym would be take off one of my shirts and zip off the bottom of my pants. And then I would be changed for gym. And I felt like I had beat the system until my gym teacher yelled at me in front of the entire boys fifth grade saying I needed to change every day. And then he monitored me every day to make sure I would change. And I was 10 years old and it was the first time like realizing my body and that I didn't want people to see it and feeling uncomfortable around people in those situations. And this kind of went on over the years like 
I couldn't go to bat. I couldn't go to a urinal if there wasn't a divider in between the urinals. Like I'd have to go into a stall because I just like couldn't be around that. And I get to my senior year of high school, and I'm taking a shower one day, and I'm just like, you know, washing all the nooks and crannies, and I come across this weird bump. And this bump is it's right at the top of my butt, at the bottom of my tailbone, right where that meets. And I feel this weird bump and I'm like, this is new. I have not felt something like this before. And I get out of the shower and I'm like, you know, in the mirror trying to bend over to see like what is going on back there. And I see this little bump that is about the size of a pea. And I'm like, this is not normal. Maybe I should get this checked out. And in my head, this idea of like, maybe this is cancer, I could die. But I also know that in order to get that checked out, I have to like tell this to my parents who then probably want to see it and then would have to take me to a doctor who'd want to see it. And all these people would have to see me with my pants down. And instead, I could just kind of ignore it, you know, because like I was a kid with acne at the time, like maybe this was just a pimple and it would go away. And so that's what I decided to do. I was going to ignore this thing on my butt. And that didn't really go that well. Like, it didn't go away. And so now I tried to study it and figure out, like, what it could be. And I would, like, poke it and prod it. And, I, I, again, I felt like I should tell somebody about it. But I did find out this thing about it where at night before I go to bed, I always would try to pee so I wouldn't have to get up to pee at night. And I realized if I pushed on this little butt pimple, the extra pee would come out and it would save me from having to get up at night to pee again. <laughs> And in my head, I'm like, this isn't a problem. This is a superpower. <laughs> and so I kept ignoring this thing. And it had been a few months. And at one point, I end up uh, at a friend's birthday party. And it's not like an alcohol party, because I didn't go to those parties in high school. But it's just there's guys and girls there. I want to be cool. And I was with my dad playing golf earlier in the day. And I had this tucked-in polo shirt. And I didn't want to go to the party with a tucked-in polo shirt, because that's not cool. So I untucked this polo shirt, and it's like a size too big. So it's kind of going down to like my thighs. And I realize this is a better look than the tucked-in shirt. So I'm around this party, having a good time. And I get home at night, and I go to take off my clothes. And there is just blood all over the back of my khaki shorts. And I'm freaking out for two reasons. And the first is that like I was just at a party with a bunch of my friends, and I had blood all over the back of my shorts. And nobody said anything this, about this to me. Were they like talking behind my back the whole time? I can't believe I can't go back to school. And I realized that like my polo shirt had been long enough untucked that it had covered the blood. And so the gods had saved me from humiliation. And I'm thinking about it. And I'm thinking about it. And something during golf must have like burst the butt pimple. And in my head, I'm like, well, maybe I should deal with this now, right? Like, I'm looking at this blood stain on the back of these khakis, and it kind of looks like a Rorschach test, you know? And there's two interpretations, and one is like, you should deal with this now. But the other is like, well, this thing has burst, and now you're fine. And so I went with that interpretation, because it meant I didn't have to tell anybody about this. And I graduate high school and I go to college and this thing doesn't go away. Like it's still there. It came back to its regular form after this burst. But now it's starting to become like more of an issue. Like I, I, I can't sit without it getting uncomfortable and me having to change positions. And 
around this time I actually get my first girlfriend and that's this new thing because now I'm having somebody like regularly see me naked and and that's new and and something to get used to and eventually I work up the courage to tell her about my my little zit back there and and she's like oh yeah you should probably get that looked at and I continued to ignore her and my head saying to get this thing looked at and I'm going on just being uncomfortable but working around it every once in a while I'll try to like pop it or just make it go away by my own and I and I can never like go search this thing on the internet like I just I don't want it to have a name or I don't want it to know what it is because I feel like if it's out in the world it's real and if it's just in my head it's okay and then eventually uh, my girlfriend and I break up at the beginning of my sophomore year of college and it's the first time I kind of realized that I've just been ignoring a lot of things like I had jumped into this relationship right at the beginning of my freshman year of college and sort of put everything into this relationship and kind of ignored college and the real world and, and being an adult and this breakup kind of made me think about like I kind of have to take things seriously and this thing had been on my butt for two years at this point so maybe it was the time to tell somebody about it and so I have my yearly physical and I go see my doctor at the health center and at college and my doctor is Dr. Doyle I've seen him a few times for like sleep issues and some other stuff since my freshman year so I'm, I'm comfortable with him and it feels like this is the time to say something. And, and so it's the end of my physical and he's like, do you have anything else you wanna ask me about today? And I say, yeah, I have this weird like bump on my butt. Uh, I don't really know what it is. He's like, oh, just take your pants down. And I'm stressed taking my pants down and it feels like fifth grade gym class again, but I do it and he looks at it for like two seconds and he's like, oh, that's a pill and idle cyst. It's not a big deal. You could just get a minor surgery and it'll be taken care of. And he says it so nonchalantly that I'm almost mad. Like, I wanted it to be a bigger thing because I had spent so much time worrying about this thing. And I'm stressed, but I'm relieved, right? Like, finally, I have relief after two years of worrying about this thing. And I go and I finally Google search what a pill and idle cyst is. And it's very common for people that are younger, especially men, because what it is, it's essentially just like an ingrown hair that has become infected and, and fills with like pus. And so I've worried for two years about an ingrown hair, thinking it was cancer and I was gonna die. But now I have to deal with this new reality and, and, and something more embarrassing than knowing that I had dealt, like ignored this for two years. And the surgery, it goes really well, but there's this thing about the surgery. And basically, the doctor's like, we can stitch this thing up, but there's, because you're an active person and you're young, like, at some point you could be doing a physical activity and the stitches could rip. And the thought of like my ass tearing stitches was just like, no, I don't want that. Please, no, 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 no. And he's like, okay, well the option then is to have an open wound and you have to go to a nurse every day to get it cleaned and repacked with gauze. And I'm like, I guess that's the option. I don't know, but sure. And so the day after the surgery, I go back to my health center and I go see Dr. Doyle and he sits me down and he pulls down my pants and he's like, hey, everything uh, looks good. It just looks like somebody went at you with a meat cleaver. And it's this joke that I laugh for the first time of this whole two year thing that I can laugh about this stupid thing that I've been freaking out about for so long. And then he's like, hey, this is Dot. She's uh, the nurse that's going to be helping you. Uh, she'll probably be here most of the time. And so then I meet Dot, and Dot's like, hey, you know, my son had this, actually. It's no big deal. 
She really puts me at ease, packs my wound, I leave, have to come back the next day, do the same thing. And after a week, I'm about used to die. And we're, she's telling me about her son, I'm telling me about her day, my day. We're becoming kind of friends. And then one day, Dot doesn't show up, and there's a new nurse. And I'm like, oh, this is new again. I have to show another person my butt. Oh, God, this sucks. But Dot's back, and I'm getting used to this thing. And along the way, like, there's times when I have to spend, like, a weekend away. And then I have to, like, tell a friend, like, I... I have this thing and I kind of need help packing and cleaning this butt wound. Can you help me? And I'm getting more and more used to talking about my butt and it's not fully healed by the end of the school year. And I'm working at a summer camp over the course of the summer. And there's nurses at this camp who mainly just like give medicine to kids and like help with a bee sting or a sprained ankle. And I have to go explain to them that me, this college age student, has a thing that they have to deal with every day and clean out and pack, which is definitely what they didn't sign up for by going to work at a summer camp. But every week there's a new nurse at camp. So there's eight weeks of camp and every week I have to tell the new nurse about this thing. But I'm getting so used to it at this point. By week three, like my pants are already halfway off as I'm explaining this to them. And they're like, what are you, what's happening? I'm like, you gotta pack this thing. I gotta get out of here. And I conquer the cysts, you know? I, I get past it, it heals, and I'm okay. And I feel like if I, if I guess I, if I really won, right? I, I guess this is the point of the story where I'd like moon all of you right now <laughs> to show you that I'm okay. I, I guess I'm still not okay though. Like I still can't pee at a urinal if there's not a divider and I've, I've never taken a shower at a gym after a workout. And I, there's things that I'm just not comfortable with but I've gotten really comfortable with my butt hanging out and strangers seeing it and it being okay. And I'm sharing it with a bunch of strangers and it feels like that's a victory enough for me. So thank you. That was Brian Berlin. Brian Berlin is a storyteller based in Brooklyn who has written for everything from sketch comedy to reality TV. He's a Moss Story Slam winner and the creator and co-host of Love Hurts, a podcast where guests share stories of the tough relationships in their lives. When he's not telling stories, he's teaching video production to high school students. The Story Collider is so grateful to Rachel and Brian for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider, along with me, managing producer Misha Gajewski, and senior podcast editor Jen Chen, with help from education director Lily B. Special thanks goes out to the Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including Managing Director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Science Advisory Fellow Edith Gonzalez, Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, and Marketing Manager Nikesha Roberts-Washington, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were from shows produced by Ari Daniel and Catherine J. Wu, and by Paula Croxon and Zach Stovall, respectively. Our theme music is by Ghost, and until next week, thanks for listening. Thank you.